Our Bible reading tonight is from John 6, uh, 3, verse 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Well, thanks for that reading, Bob. Uh, Let me add my welcome to that of Grace. Uh, My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, uh, we've reached the end of a series uh, entitled Conversations That Matter and another big conversation uh, to have tonight on this topic. Uh, So let me uh, pray for us, ask that God will help us as we come to grapple with his word and think through this topic together. Uh, Please join me. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that we can gather here tonight. And we acknowledge that your word uh, teaches us about who you are and what your plans for this world is, how you view humanity and our standing before you. And we pray as we think through uh, this uh, heavy and sensitive topic tonight that you might give us uh, eyes to see things from your perspective, that we may grasp more of what it is uh, that you see as you look down upon this world and of people's response to you and of your response ultimately to that on the final day. Lord, grant us uh, grace in your, our understanding together tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I put it to you tonight that our society has the confused relationship with the idea of hell. Most Australians say that they don't believe it exists, and yet it's so ingrained in our culture that it's peppered in our language all the time. People use it as an exclamation mark or in a light-hearted way. They say, how the hell would I know what was going on? Or these kind of phrases. And yet more seriously too, people will use it to talk about difficult experiences that somebody is going through. And so we'll say, you know, he went through hell when his son passed away. Or you don't know the hell that she's gone through to get to this point in life. Or this disease that this person is experiencing is like a living hell. The pain of this life. However, when someone speaks with regard to hell being a reality as a punishment for our moral choices, the response is often altogether different. You know, when Israel Folau hit send on that now infamous Instagram post, there was a huge tidal wave, wasn't there, a backlash of indignation and outrage that followed in the media especially. 
the words in Falau's post were warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you, repent, only Jesus saves. Of course, the focus for much of the media coverage that followed was on just one word listed in that homosexuality, and it was for that reason that his rugby contract was torn up. But notice if you read through that list, that addresses every Australian, certainly from the Bible's perspective. And the focus of the reaction, not just on the one issue, but sometimes on many of the others listed, I think shows us something with regard to our nation's response to being held to account. We don't like the idea of being judged in any way. Now, the idea of God judging anyone, let alone punishing them for certain choices, is now abhorrent in our society's outlook. Even though most people don't believe it exists, they find the concept of hell deeply offensive in this context. You can sort of feel the emotion behind the response, can't you, with the sort of phrases that sometimes people will say, how dare you suggest that God will judge me? I want nothing to do with such a God. How could he condemn people? I'm not really that bad. But it does beg the question, doesn't it? Uh, what is this hell that so many find offensive in that context of punishment? When the Bible, uh, hell is the destination of those who are finally condemned by God on judgment day because of their sin. The Bible's teaching on hell is that it's a real place. It's not just a state of mind or an experience that we might have on earth. No, it's a place of conscious, eternal punishment. And we're given many images and metaphors in the Bible to depict something of the horror of such a place. The Bible talks about fire, talks about burning sulfur, talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, talks about outer darkness. And darkness, to pick up one of those, represents separation from God's presence, but also from everything that is good. For example, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 uh, presents that picture of hell when it records they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. So even in light of this very short definition of hell, uh, it goes without saying that the description is a very bleak one. The Bible's teaching here is quite unambigu unambiguous and it's of awesome seriousness. And so it's right that people feel the emotional weight of such a final destination. Now, with such a definition, it's no wonder that people find this idea even, let alone its reality, as terrifying. And so I want to acknowledge um, here in the introduction tonight 
that I take no joy in you know, preaching on hell or God's punishment. I mean, out of compassion for the many people who I personally know who have not responded in trust to Jesus, let alone the billions of others in this world who are yet to, I feel the weight of raising such a conversation of how uncomfortable it is. And if ever there was a topic that killed conversation, surely this is it. Uh, my wife, Christine, had that experience this week, chatting to a couple of non-Christian ladies that she's friends with and somehow came up in discussion and the topic of hell was raised by my wife. Silence, immediately changing of the subject. And it's understandable. But surely because, at least from God's view, from the Bible's view, our eternal destination is at stake in such a question. Surely this is one of the most important conversations to have, no matter how hard. But you see, this question that we're considering tonight, how can a good God send people to hell, is not only an emotive question for people, it's also an illogical one for many, because they cannot hold together these contradictions, as they see it, of God being good and loving and yet also being angry and punishing people. They say, ah, not these characteristics contradictory. How can they be held together? And the result for many Australians is they reject the notion altogether that God might punish anyone and they just want to hold to, if there is a God, a God of love. I mean, after all, the Bible does say in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. But of course, even professing Christians can sometimes drift into this kind of thinking where they just want to hold on to God as love and minimize, if not move away from, any sense that he holds us to account for our lives. Why is it that we struggle with these two things? Why can't they coexist in our minds? Why cannot God have the characteristics of goodness and of holiness whereby he judges? Well, I think the root cause of our struggle seems to be the suspicion uh, that the ideas of anger and punishment are somehow unworthy of God. If these things were true, then that puts a big question mark over God's character. Surely he's flawed at that point. And so people will say, for instance, you know, wrath or anger suggests a loss of self-control. You know, it's an outburst of anger or rage, which is at least partially irrational, if not completely so. And if that's the case, well, then surely that's not a good picture. For some, it's the rage of wounded pride or just plain bad temper. And it's argued that surely if God is like that, if God has anger like that, it puts a huge question over whether he could be good a good God would never get angry, some say, because surely anger is always bad. And then others will point out that we struggle with this perhaps because God's punishment of hell seems to suggest cruelty or even manipulation. So it's argued by some that a God who would inflict such punishment must be a cruel and vindictive monster 
You know, even if we have done some things wrong in our lives, you know, a punishment as terrifying as hell can only be the work of some kind of malicious being who just delights in people's suffering. If hell involves eternal conscious torment, then sending people there must make God awful. And this clearly would prove that he's not good. And for some, teamed with that is the sense that hell is just there to cause fear. It's about manipulation of people's response. Now, one atheist has written, it's an indictment, surely, of any religion that you would use fear of everlasting torment in order to keep people in the fold. It seems to me that your religion cannot keep people in by virtue of its own merits. But if you have to scare people out of leaving, you are perpetuating an abusive relationship, plain and simple. It's about control. And then others will say, trying to weigh up the punishment, that you know, hell just seems disproportionate given our goodness. I mean, they're sure if there is a heaven that they're worthy of it. You know, Aussies will often define their goodness, won't they? They'll say, well, you know, I've never murdered anyone. I have never stolen anything, so I'm a pretty good person. I'm certainly better than my neighbour next door because I know he's stolen something. We have this kind of attitude of summarising our goodness and thinking we're worthy worthy of heaven. And so the argument then is that if there is a hell, then surely only the most evil person could be placed there. To suggest that that might be applied to a good person like themselves, well, that's a punishment out of all proportion, even if they would admit that at times, you know, they've done some things wrong. The punishment, people say, doesn't fit the crime. But let's have a think about those arguments for a moment because we've got to step back and consider the assumptions that sit behind them and what the Bible actually teaches regarding some of those points. See, firstly, in reply to the argument about God's angry response to sin being somehow unworthy of God's character, well, that rests on an assumption, doesn't it, that God's anger is just like ours. And so we picture ourselves, I don't know, losing it with our best friend or our children if we have them and you know it's this outburst of irrational anger and we think well if God is like that you know well he's just flawed like I am that's not good but you see in the Bible God's anger is never irritable or the morally wrong thing that so often human anger is Instead, it's a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And the way to grasp that truth is to ask questions like, would a God who didn't care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and loving being? If God never got angry at the evil in this world, if he saw no difference between the Hitlers and Stalins of the world and somebody that loves him, then surely something is wrong with God. That's not moral perfection. And this adverse reaction to sin is precisely what the Bible has in mind when it speaks of God's anger. I think we sense that all the time ourselves, don't we? We want justice, at least for other people. <laughs> You know, we see some terrible crime on TV 
and we hear that the person gets away with it or there's no jail sentence and people are up in arms. We're up in arms as we watch it and we think, it's just not right. There should be punishment. I'm, I'm righteously angry about this situation. For example, think about the abduction of William Tyrrell. You may remember this story. Aged three, taken from the front lawn of his grandparents' house. It's five years ago now, September five years ago. I haven't found the perpetrator. Nothing has happened. It's a devastating situation that's just torn that family apart, torn the small town of Kendall where it happened apart. And I think something within us longs to see the perpetrator caught, justice to be served. If we didn't care about that situation, I just... Ah, it's just another kid who cares. What kind of person is that? There's, there's no compassion, no love, no empathy. If God looked down on the world and behaved and reacted that way, there'd be something very wrong. God's anger is part of his moral perfection. But secondly, with regard to the punishment of hell demonstrating that God is cruel and manipulative, manipulative, God's judgment, we need to realise over and over in the Bible, is described as being measured and judicial. We had to picture a courtroom scene. God is the judge. He has all the evidence before him. He knows every thought, every word, every action of your life. He judges fairly because he knows completely. And he is administering justice to all people impartially. Cruelty is always immoral, absolutely, but the Bible simply shows God upholding justice and every person getting exactly what he or she deserves. Our problem as we think about that concept is that we like justice for other people, but we like mercy for ourselves. And so we see the driver in front of us swerving in and out of the traffic or going through a red light and we want them to be caught. We want justice to take place. And then if we do something on the road, no, we want to be forgiven. Mercy should be shown to us. We've got extenuating circumstances. We're rushing somewhere. You know, I'm just having a bad day, but I'm really a good person. We're not even when it comes to judging things, but God is. He's impartial. He knows everything. He doesn't overlook some and be harsh on others. And the claim of manipulating people through fear, well, that only holds, surely, if hell is not a real place. If it were just invented to keep people in line, absolutely. But the Bible is consistently serious about its existence. And the consequences of every action in this life echoing into eternity. But what about that issue of disproportionate punishment? You know, we're basically good and, you know, to put anybody in hell, let alone me, would just be completely unfair. Well, the famous American pastor during the great revival of the 18th century in the US, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, arguably one of the greatest theologians and pastors that country has ever seen, said this, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. In contrast, Edwards argued, the reality is vastly different. 
And he assessed himself the same way. He was very even-handed. He said this about him, his own life. I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. When I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. Your wickedness too makes you, as it were, as heavy as lead. And all your righteousness would have no influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web has of stopping a falling rock. Well, harsh, you might say, but Edwards would say, simply reflecting what God says in his word. This is the reality. This is humanity. Our problem, you see, is that we don't see our sin as serious. Uh, We think about our individual actions and we play them down. It was just a white lie. Nobody's going to care about that or even notice. Surely God doesn't care. Why has he got time to worry about things like that? So we're always placing the bar so low that we can always hop over it. We want to set the test so that we always pass the exam. It's always in our head or in our mind how things work. The problem is is that the Bible teaches that every individual sin, whether how small or how large, just shows part of our bigger problem, which is our rejection of God's rule over our life. Ultimately, sin is our desire to be in charge. It's not just one little thing. It's that thing and a thousand others indicating that we want to run life our own way, that we believe that we are God and we say no thank you to the true one. But we don't like to hear it. It's like a cancer diagnosis. Nobody wants to be told that they've got cancer. But we want the right diagnosis, surely. If we are diagnosed, then we might be able to get treatment to move us from impending death to life. And the same is true of our sin before a holy God. You see, God's eternal judgment is not disproportionate, it's fair. And it's ultimately fair because the Bible makes it clear that it's a result of our choices, our actions. Any punishment that God inflicts is a conscious continuation of the state in which a person has chosen to be themselves. That is, apart from God. You see, the unbeliever has preferred to be by himself or herself, defying God, And what God ultimately chooses to do is to give us over to our preference. The essence of God's wrath is to give people what they choose with all its implications. And frankly, as we think about that, God's readiness to do that is truly terrifying. To let us have what we want. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it's something a person opts for as they retreat from the light that God shines into their life. Have a look with me at John 3, verses 17 to 20, which was read for us earlier. Because John highlights something here that's really important that we need to grasp as we think on this topic. From verse 17... For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, I think people read verse 17 at times and think, see, Jesus just come to save everyone. He doesn't condemn anyone. No, that's not what it's saying. Read verse 18 and 19 carefully. We assume that when Jesus enters our world, he enters into a neutral world. You know, where we're kind of fine, where we're choosing. And we don't really need him to come and save us because we're going quite well. The verses 18 and 19 make clear to us that Jesus enters a world that is already condemned. He doesn't come to condemn the world. It's already condemned by our sinfulness. We stand condemned as he enters. Everybody is going to hell if they go under their own power before God. But Jesus in his coming offers a rescue so that some people might shift to life. That they might step from under the condemnation that is rightfully theirs and receive forgiveness. John explains, doesn't he, in verse 19, that the commencement of judgment upon people is the judgment which they pass on themselves by rejecting the light of salvation through Jesus. But so often we're happier, or we think we are that way. People prefer to live without Jesus in charge. And therefore they choose to withdraw from the light of the gospel from the offer of being saved from God's just judgment. And in the final analysis, all that God does subsequently in his judicial action towards us is to show an unbeliever the full implications of the choice they've made. Now I put it to you on the basis of John's argument here in John 3, and it's a consistent one throughout the New Testament, that the application that we can make from this as we consider this question tonight is that God can be both loving and just. One does not rule out the other. They come together. And the ultimate proof of that is the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, God's justice and mercy meet in the person of Jesus who bears our sin, the punishment that we deserve, poured out on him so that those who trust in him might be forgiven and the wrath not fall on them. This is where God demonstrates how we can move from being condemned in the punishment of hell to life. God is both holy and loving and the two must be held together. The most famous verse in the Bible encapsulates these two ideas. John 3.16, just before the section we just read. Many of you will know it off by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love shown in the sending of his son to bear our punishment so that we might avoid perishing avoid the consequences of our sin. God's love is understood through the cross where he punishes his son in our place. 
so that we have an offer of salvation. Jesus bears God's wrath so that we don't have to. Jesus is forsaken by his Father so that we don't have to be. Now, I realize that these are heavy thoughts. As I said at the start, there's no joy in talking about hell. It makes me shudder at times. I say at times because for the most part, I don't dwell on the eternal realities of hell and heaven as I should. And I want to say to you tonight, if I did, then I would be more urgent in my prayer life for every unbeliever that I know. These truths should drive us to our knees if we're believers. Because we know what is at stake. Now, I have friends and family who are facing a Christless eternity. And I've spent time, at least with some of them, explaining God's offer of salvation. I want them to grasp the wonderful solution that God puts before us so that we don't need to stand under his wrath. And I've spent time with lots of people whose lives are drawing towards the end of their life and sharing in the same way because they're lacking that hope, that certain hope that comes with faith in Jesus. But the urgency should be greater for myself, for all of us. Now, I wish it were otherwise. I can certainly wish there were no hell, there were, there were no consequences, there was no accountability. But really, it, that would just be to go against God's word. If you're feeling that tonight, it's been expressed by many great thinkers, many better thinkers than myself. The famous Christian author C.S. Lewis once said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christianity and it has the support of reason. Let me finish tonight by speaking both to those who know Jesus as Lord and those who are unsure where they stand tonight. Firstly, if you are a Christian here tonight, let me urge you not to reject God's word on this point. To not rely on religious hunches, private hunches, or your feelings, wishing that hell didn't exist, so that you might play down this eternal reality. Maybe because you want to excuse God and protect his character, or it just makes you feel more comfortable as you think about these things in relation to non-believers that are close to your heart. If we walk away from what God tells us, it does not provide any protection and it is certainly not loving. Christine and I went through Bible college some years ago now and we've kept up with one couple that was there fairly sporadically who have served largely in Sydney. And the wife for a number of years was um, serving at a very well-known Christian school on the North Shore. And she took on the role of SRE or teaching scripture as part of what she was doing there. But as she began her teaching, she was brought in by the head teacher and she was told quite emphatically, you can teach the students about God's love, but you are not to speak of his punishment. 
Well, there's something wrong, isn't there, with that? Teach people about how they might be saved through Jesus. Just don't tell them about what they're being saved from. We need to hold firmly to what the Bible says, not resort to our feelings, what we would like to be true. And we've got to share this good news with urgency. I mean, this is the spur of the Great Commission. People need to hear before it's too late. God calls us to reach out to all people and if we're a believer, then we know that the clock is ticking. None of us know how long we've got. We may not be here tomorrow. The only loving thing to do is to warn people of the judgment to come. And let me say, not only do Christians say that, but at times even non-Christians will admit that. Maybe you've heard of Penn Jillette. Uh, He's an actor, a magician, a TV personality. He's also a strong atheist who wrote a book on his lack of faith in any God in 2009. But he said on the back of some interviews around that time after his book was released, I've always said that I don't respect Christians who don't proselytize. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and if you think that it's really not worth telling them because it would make things socially awkward, well, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Well, he's right, isn't he? We must share Jesus. And it's not about going with a fire and brimstone message or a self-righteousness that's suggesting that I'm better than anybody else. We're not. We know if we've come to faith in Jesus, it's got nothing to do with our performance that will get us to heaven. It's all about Christ's perfection and it's nothing to do with me. And so I come humbly, urgently, speaking as a beggar, offering bread to another beggar, as it were, because I want them to know the truth. Now, tonight, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, let me urge you to consider this important issue. I mean, it's really a conversation that matters. If this is true, then everything we do in this life will be held to account. And we're all going to fall short of God's perfect standard. The person next to you may not know everything you've done and you could impress them perhaps for a time. If God has complete knowledge of your life and knows every thought, every word that's ever come out of your mouth, every action you've ever done, there is no way that for a moment that you will meet his perfect standard. We're going to fall short. God's searching spotlight is just too great. But God doesn't want to see us condemned. He wants us to move out from under his condemnation and to receive life and life eternal. God in his love has provided a way in the sending of his son Jesus. And his desire is that you might accept his payment through his son who bore our guilt on the cross. And then you could appear before the judge of all the earth on that final day 
not in your own stead, offering your own good works, but standing next to one who can vouch for you, who lived a perfect life. I want to face God on judgment day with Jesus beside me, not in my own stead. And God wants you to do that too. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9 we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, that is, Jesus returning and judgment commencing. He's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You can have assurance where you stand before God, and it's not an arrogant thing for a moment. As I just mentioned before, it has nothing to do with us and our performance, but everything to do with Jesus and his perfect life and his payment on our behalf. And if we place our trust in the one who did what we cannot as our substitute, then we have right standing before a holy God Even as we are, even in our sin, because that sin has been dealt with and paid for once and for all. In his love, God offered a rescue. But we do need to receive that gift of salvation. And that's why that word repentance is so key in that verse in 2 Peter 3, 9. Repentance means an about face, a 180 degree turn. We've actually got to admit that we were wrong. That we've been in charge and... Jesus should have been. To admit our predicament and humbly come before God and say, I want to receive your solution. I want to put my trust in Jesus and his payment for me, a sinner. Well, let me encourage you to think about that tonight if you're unsure. Please read further, think further. Have a conversation that matters with somebody that you trust here that you know well. But don't walk away from a question like this, being uncertain, unclear. There is just too much at stake. We'd love to talk with you. I certainly would. But let me pray for us as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving and merciful God. We acknowledge that you are also a God that must uphold the right, that you must judge that which is wrong. And there's something deep within us that longs to see that happen in our world of injustice. And so often we set aside that belief when it comes to thinking about ourselves and our standing before you. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are. Help us to see that you are both good and just that you have provided a way for us to be right with you through the sending of your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to turn to him, to place our trust in the one who can take us from death to life, who can take us out from under our deserving condemnation for our failures before you and grant us forgiveness and new life that starts now and goes on into eternity. We give you thanks for these actions for us in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.